Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It's Friday the 27th of October coming up on today's show. We're going to be following the aftermath of Andrew Bridgen MP's speech in the House of Commons here in Britain last week. Uh, He did a follow-up interview with GB News for Mark Dolan. We're going to be playing that for you. And also uh, another MP, uh, let's get her name correctly, I think it is Esther McVeigh. She talks about it from a very different point of view and it's the one that I thought and hoped a lot of people would take which is the devil's advocate common sense let's just listen to everyone's opinion and isn't free speech a good idea kind of thing just and she's talking about how you know regardless of what you think of the vaccine perhaps we could have got a lot more done and she will explain why if we'd have had a much better free speech environment. Basically, it sounds like everything that I was pointing out on this Beyond the News podcast over the last two years, really. And she seems to uh, put it succinctly into a short speech, again, in the Houses of Parliament. If we get time, I'm going to play a clip from the Joe Rogan podcast talking about Canada's new podcast regulations, a story of a policeman here in Britain, and a story from Los Angeles as well. That's what we've got coming up on today's show. So let's go into, first of all, the Mark Dolan interview with Andrew Bridgen. This is five days ago, so the debate took place seven days ago, so this will be a couple of days after that then. Main party MP Andrew Bridgen was finally granted a debate in the House of Commons on worryingly high excess deaths in this country in the aftermath of the pandemic. Here's what he told the House yesterday. Experienced more excess deaths since July 2021 in the whole of 2020. Unlike the pandemic, however, these deaths are not disproportionately of the old. In other words, the excessive deaths are striking down people in the prime of life. But no one seems to care. I fear history will not judge this House kindly. Worse still, in a country supposedly committed to free and frank exchange of views, it appears that no one cares that no one cares. Well, I care, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I credit those members here in attendance today who also care. So why are excess deaths so high and why is no one talking about it, least of all MPs? The chamber was all but empty yesterday with only the likes of GB News presenter Philip Davies in attendance. To debate this, I'm delighted to welcome Andrew Bridgen himself, as well as renowned NHS GP David Lloyd. Uh, Dr. David Lloyd, I should add. Now, uh, Andrew, first of all, for the uninitiated, uh, what does the expression excess deaths actually mean? Well, please, to define excess deaths, what you've got to do is uh, estimate the number of deaths that were expected. And if you've got more than that, you've you've got an excess. There are various Mm. ways of measuring it. uh, And the ONS, unfortunately, are using a method where they count in their baseline for their average uh, the year of 2021. Obviously, there was nothing average about the deaths in 2021. And obviously, the higher you make your your uh, expected number, the, the less the excess. So there are different ways of calculating it, but every way you calculate it, there is an excess. And what I've identified is, uh, with the help of scientists who've posed the questions, is that the ONS aren't actually reporting the correct weekly death figures, because a large number of deaths are actually being reported to coroners for investigation, quite rightly. But then those figures 
and never being incorporated into the weekly death figures, uh, possibly not for years. Uh, so what are some of the damning headline figures? Because I think there's concern about the number of excess deaths and also the age groups. Well, it's, it's, it's ischemic heart disease and heart failure are, are the big uh, excess death reasons, excess mortality reasons, not only in the UK, but around the world, because this isn't just a UK problem. It's, it's stretching across the developed world all the way around to Australia, who've got some shocking excess mortality figures, exactly the same as we have. But Australia is, is a very interesting uh, for, for the debate because they actually rolled out the vaccines, the experimental vaccines, before they got many cases of, of COVID in large amounts of their country. And what they actually saw was excess deaths that were nothing to do with COVID at all because they hadn't had any cases of COVID in parts of Australia, but they had had the vaccination and they suffered the excess deaths. Uh, Dr. David Lloyd, good to have you on the programme. Why do you think excess deaths are so high? Are you concerned? Yes, I think I'm very concerned. Uh, and to answer Mr. Bridgen's very detailed research, I, I, I can't do that. But I think there is an issue about causality. We know that people who died in 2021 and 2022, 93% of them had had a COVID vaccine. Uh, and there was a huge increase in mortality, but it wasn't caused by the COVID vaccine, uh, as Mr. Bridgen has just said, there is this very strong link between COVID, the disease, and the development of heart disease later on. I think we're in the middle of a very long tail. Uh, I work as one of my jobs, I work as a medical examiner at my local hospital where we look into the deaths of people who die in the hospital. And people are dying of COVID now. People are dying in intensive care of COVID, um, but they won't be counted as a COVID death because they died beyond the 28-day rule for, uh, with a test within 28 days for COVID. So underreporting is, is a big issue. We are going to see an awful lot more deaths, and we're going to see an awful lot of people who have had COVID who develop heart problems later on in their lives as well. So it is a very worrying problem. But the important thing to say is that it's not the vaccine that's causing this problem, it's the disease. And the vaccine is the cause, is the thing that we need to give people still to stop them getting the consequences uh, of COVID and the heart problems associated with that. Andrew, do you accept that point that actually it's COVID which is causing these heart problems rather than the vaccination? Well, it couldn't have caused it in Australia where they were vaccinated before. They didn't get hit hard by, with COVID until the Omicron wave, which was much later, and they had already got the heart, the huge increase in uh, a 67% increase in re reported um, um, hospitalizations for cardiac arrest in uh, southern Australia. I quoted all those figures in my speech uh, yesterday. And also, the, the learned doctor should know, uh, there was a, a very, very good paper from Israel that came out, established, I think, a, about uh, 12 months ago, which clearly showed that uh, that um, the COVID itself did not cause uh, increases in heart failure. Uh, that This is totally down to the vaccines. We know uh, that the vaccines cause myocarditis and pericarditis. That's now been, been admitted. In the, in the Pfizer trial, there were four um, pa uh, patients in the Pfizer trial group who died of cardiac arrest, but only one in the placebo group. I think that is pretty significant now. That's, uh, that's pretty significant. Uh, Dr. Taylor, we heard so much about the COVID death toll during the pandemic. Why 
the silence from the medical establishment over excess deaths. I appreciate, take on board that you're concerned, but I haven't seen too many medics on TV uh, publicizing these excess deaths. Oh, I think it's a very uh, common thing to talk about amongst doctors. It's a very common thing to talk about. I mean, don't forget. Well, I don't. I haven't seen any press conferences. I haven't seen any newspaper headlines about it. Well, and I've also not seen any television networks debate it. And the House of Commons was empty yesterday. Why? Well, I think that the uh, the extreme views that people have about that you, you call it an experimental vaccine is not an experimental vaccine. It was developed using well, all well, the well, why is it under emergency use authorization? It why is it still under well, then, emergency well, use authorization with, with product indemnity? Tell me why the Nobel Prize Committee decided to award this year's medicine prize to the two people who developed the mRNA vaccine. We know this vaccine is a major, major advance. They, they also, they also gave wait, 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 Andrew, Nobel. Andrew, I'll come back to you. Let, let, let Richard finish his point. Richard? I'm just, I'm just saying that the COVID vaccine is David, sorry. the first. Sorry, it, it's the, I didn't answer to your name. Uh, is, the COVID vaccine is the first vaccine of a bunch of mRNA vaccines that are going to come in which are going to be of fantastic benefit to the human race. We're now investigating whether mRNA vaccines can treat cancer, and there's a strong possibility that they will. So when people start to doubt the... Well, that's convenient because there's a lot of oncologists that say they've seen a great rise in cancer rates since the mRNA vaccine. So what could uh, cause something could now solve something as well. What a wonderful business model. And so when start, people start to call it an experimental vaccine that is detrimental to the development of medicine the Nobel detrimental to the development of medicine but as Andrew pointed out well kind of true and we've now got that great divide haven't we between common sense and this great faith in medicine as committee don't just award these things because on a for stuff like this anyway of course you know like surgeries and other stuff western medicine uh, you know, very, very. If I get hit by a car, you know, don't take me to the nearest conspiracy theorist. Take me to the hospital for surgery. You know, I've got great deal of uh, respect for their ability to fix things after it's gone wrong. But in terms of prevention, we've heard from doctors before say about the level of nutrition. Um, what do you call it? Nutritional education they got for their doctorate, their MD, if you like, and. Not to mention other doctors pointing out that other people in their profession seem to be just completely and utterly unable to take on board any reality or facts that may bring their profession into a less than favourable light. They do very detailed research. Uh, and so it's a fantastic boost for mRNA vaccines that we've got the Nobel Prize. And the data shows that only 51 people in the entire country died as a result uh, of COVID vaccinations, which is one chance in 359,000. Whereas you contrast that to the hundreds of thousands of people that we saved from dying from the, the vaccine, the evidence is overwhelming that this vaccine works and is safe and should... Andrew Bridgen is rolling his eyes at this point. ...continue to be used, and we are still seeing people dying of COVID. So I, 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 I think Mr. Bridgen is a very good, he's done lots of in-depth research. I commend him for getting this um, relatively difficult to obtain data. But the mainstream medical profession strongly believe that the benefits of COVID vaccines far outweigh the risks. 
when we're dealing with such a deadly disease. Um, David, I'm just going to be a final question to you before I come back to Andrew. Um, I've got no doubt that uh, the vaccine must have been very helpful for those who risked hospitalization or serious illness. Uh, but given yeah. that the vaccine neither stopped transmission or prevented you from getting COVID, why did we vaccinate healthy people at low risk, particularly children? Well, I think that I think you've hit on a, a, a very interesting point, and I'm afraid I'm not an epidemiologist. And as you say, although there is some weak data suggests that it does prevent transmission a little bit, it's not actually designed for that, as you say. Oh, do you remember the clip where the people that made the vaccine said they hoped it stopped transmission, but had no data to suggest that it did? It turns out some of their hopes may have come true. Designed to prevent hospitalisation and death. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think that there, there needs to be some big talks about who should get it. And as you know, this round of vaccination we're doing at the moment is only for the at-risk population. It's not for children. Uh, Andrew, an empty House of Commons yesterday. Why? Well, I'd just like to come back on the point about the Nobel Prize Committee. Um, there's a lot of politics and money involved, involved in the Nobel Prizes. Do you remember when Obama got the Peace Prize right away when it got into office? And I would uh, remind your viewers that they did give a Nobel Prize for medicine to the man who invented frontal lobotomy. I'm not <laughs> sure that the learned doctor would on a stick of that. I did not know that one. Do you know what lobotomies are? One flew over the cuckoo's nest. It was a, a, a very well-deserved... Uh, Accolade. Um, there was no there's nobody in the chamber because um, they didn't want to talk about it, and uh, this, unofficially, that's 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 what they don't want to talk about. When I raise issues that they don't want to talk about, uh, the reason I'm shunned in Parliament is because the public do want to talk about these issues. They want to talk about excess deaths. They want to talk about vaccine harms. They want to talk about the sexualisation of our children in schools through PHE education. They want to talk about the WHO power grab over, uh, over our sovereignty. And when I raise these issues, constituents email their own MP because they're concerned about it. And it forces MPs to debate and put themselves certainly on the wrong side of history. Um, but the sort of trouble is that history uh, is written by the establishment and the victors, and we haven't won yet, but we are going to because the truth will come out. Oh, well, my thanks to the is already there for COVID vaccination. Okay, uh, my thanks to NHS GP Dr. David Lloyd. Thank you, David, for joining us, and Andrew. Thank you for your time as well, Andrew Bridgen, MP. So that was interesting. That's the closest I've seen to an actual debate. It wasn't really a debate because uh, you know you've got someone who isn't an epidemiologist debating someone who isn't doesn't have any medical qualifications whatsoever, from what I can see, but. That's the closest thing that I've seen to one on a mainstream media channel, at least with both sides represented by people that seem to know what they're talking about on their relative sides, you know, with respect to their camps. But it's amazing, isn't it, that that doctor was there. Oh, there's some papers that say it may stop transmission, but has he not seen the, was it the hearings, the Senate committees, the, you know, it's a big, big deal you know i don't think it it's a good idea for them to be telling porky pies under those situations whatever it's called and they say no doesn't stop transmission we just hoped it would i've played that clip on this show before so now we're going to be taking uh, a listen to 
Esther McVeigh in the House of Commons. It comes again via Dr John Campbell, but uh, he'll be giving his views. But what I think is really interesting here is that she doesn't go down any particular pro-vax or anti-vax route. She goes down the route of, hey, don't you think science is better when everyone can be heard? And um, that's a point I've been making for a while. And she comes at all the... uh, In the conspiracy world, there's overlaps with the normal population where it comes to hey isn't it a good idea if we all chip in with our ideas everyone can be heard and we just rationalize and talk things through calmly and when you're on the camp of no no not at all no 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 no, you can't hear only listen to this person only listen to that person that person's bad that person's bad there's a common you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to go mm, I'm not so sure I trust that person or I'm not so certain that that person is correct they the problem is that that I don't think for one second that doctor on that previous clip thought that he was incorrect so we shall see won't it so this is Esther McVeigh talking about the idea of isn't it a good idea to just have a little bit more free speech and isn't it rather silly she was basically talking about the tribalism involved you know right then this new th- just the basic common sense of hey it's an experimental thing we don't know much about it anyone going hey do you know what i think we need a little bit more research you're an anti-vaxxer the idea is ridiculous and she actually brings up some stats about some mps and the term anti-vaxxers that I think are very interesting and worth listening to here. So this is Esther McVeigh via Dr John Campbell. To today's talk, Tuesday the 26th of October. Now I want to talk about the speech, and indeed play the speech, by uh, Ms Esther McVeigh, Member of Parliament for the uh, fortunate people of uh, Tatton. And she really encapsulates a lot of what we've been thinking about and the frustrations that I know a lot of you are feeling. Now, this was in the English House of Commons. It was put forward by Sir Christopher Chope, a Conservative Member of Parliament. Now, this debate was attended by three Labour MPs, no Liberal Democrat MPs, no Scottish Nationalist MPs, and uh, eight or nine Conservative MPs. Quite an abysmal turnout for such an important topic. But she talks about safe and effective. What do these words mean? And this is part of the problem. It, it, it is the corruption of the very language that we use to try and describe things that's used to change meaning. She talks about questions that really weren't allowed to be asked and talks about not the progress of science, but there's the science. You lot sit down there, take notes. I'll tell you what the science is. Don't think for yourself. And abusive terms like covid anti-vaxxers. And we really do need an open debate, but she puts it so well. But to just give her this, uh, I think it's about 10 minutes, give her the time. And um, I know it alleviated a lot of the frustrations I've been feeling. So uh, over to Esther McVeigh, thank you. And at the tail end of his speech, he talked about the phrase safe and effective. And I'd like to pick up on that phrase and start my speech from there. A phrase, safe and effective, that became the COVID vaccine catchphrase, we'll call it that, that was repeated so many times over the last couple of years, it cropped up everywhere in government communications, in interviews with experts, and across a media too, only too happy to run with that 
COVID slogan, safe and effective. So ingrained did that become in the national psyche that to ever then ask questions about the COVID vaccine became very difficult to do indeed. And asking questions is a vital part of scientific and indeed political debate. However, when discussing COVID, we no longer appeared to be dealing with science. Oh no, Mr. Deputy Speaker, but rather the science. And to question the science was to risk being called and labelled a COVID idiot. It's classic um, CIA mind control techniques. If you go and look at MK Ultra, the idea of dehumanise, label, mantras, repeat, break things down to basic terms so you don't have to get involved in the debate. You can just use these terms and look for the conformity factor behind you. Have you heard the terms as well? You can shout them at them too. We'll all be right together. It's a very basic form of mind control. <clears throat> MK Ultra, go and have a look at it. Or that most poisonous of terms, anti-vaxxer. People who just wanted to query this new vaccine were closed down and were vilified. And what that did was, and is continuing to do, is that it drives those two, two camps together. The conspiracy types that are way down the rabbit hole and the ones that were just, um, on. I've taken all my other vaccines, I'm not into conspiracy theories, but I've read what the pharmaceutical companies say about their own products and I've decided not to take it. I mean, I've read it out December 2020 on this podcast. That's the thing. The pharmaceutical companies, what they've actually published and said under oath is usually pretty good. They've not really, I mean, they've said it doesn't really stop transmission. Um, I mean, there aren't that many lies. They just tried to do lies of omission of like all that data where, you know, as Andrew Bridgen said, more died from heart problems than in the uh, vaccine trial than the placebo trial. Let's see if we can delay that coming out for a little while. How long's a while? Oh, let's see if we can get away for uh, 55 years, maybe? That kind of stuff. I mean, they've actually been quite honest. If you go and look at the original Pfizer 2020 thing, we don't really know what it does. We don't know how it interacts with any medication. We don't know how it uh, uh, affects pregnancy or facility. I mean, it's all it's all there from what I can remember from reading out the best part of three years ago. The December 2020 podcast, you'll see the links to be able to see it for yourself and read it for yourself there. And then that went from, don't know what it does, emergency use, and then suddenly it became safe and effective. And then it went from anyone that doesn't think it's safe and effective is and then label the name. It really was classic mind control of let's not look at the facts. Let's just take them from one step to the other without them realising how they're getting to that step. Okay? Step one, take jab. Step two, jab safe. Step three, people who don't take jab, unsafe. Step four, build fear. Step five, divide. Step six, insight. Step seven, get them to label and then turn the fear into insults and or hatred. It was really quite classic to see in real time. It's a classic mind control technique of the masses used over and over again. And this is Esther McVeigh pointing out that there were a lot of normal people who thought, uh, I've read the Pfizer thing, I think I'll just give this a miss actually, 
what's my su- survival rate for COVID? Is it 99% if I'm in pretty good health? I'll go with that. And the problem was they pushed too far and called too many people nut jobs. That's problem number one. Problem number two, the nut jobs seem to have turned out to be more correct than the ones in the... Uh, I, I, I've got no other word for it than cult. Because these... I don't really almost blame the pharmaceutical companies. They were reasonably honest from what I can see. It's the media and politicians that really took, we don't know what this does, take your chances to, safe and effective. So safe and effective that you don't want to take it, you're a nutter. You know, so safe and effective we're going to mandate it. You know, some lawyers have said that it's a breach of the Nuremberg Code, but that's how safe and effective we feel it is. There was a a complete disconnect from reality there. I still would have not trusted the pharmaceutical companies, even if all the results... If, they, if, they, if I'd have been reading out in December 2020, our product is stunning, we can't believe how well we've uh, outdone ourselves, this is brilliant, it doesn't interact with... It. Do you know what I mean? If it had said that, then you can understand the whole safe and effective thing. But she really, as I've pointed out before... When words don't mean what they're meant to mean, they lose their meaning. And Esther breaks this down now. So I looked up the definition of anti-vaxxer and was surprised to learn that it is someone who opposes the use of some or all vaccines, regulations mandating vaccination, or usually both. And there were 246 of us in this house who, on the 13th of July 2021, voted against mandating the vaccines for care workers. That's 246 anti-vaxxers in this house, according to the latest definition. And that's absolute nonsense. People weren't anti-vaxxers. Other people have been now concerned that other vaccines families are losing faith in. Because So, the people that weren't anti-vaxxers who just thought, mm, I'll give that, I'll take my 99% survival rate, thanks. I don't know, the companies have said they don't know what it does. And it, they did it rather quick. Yeah, I'll go with the 99%. You've now lumped them in with the whole the way down the rabbit hole lot. Well, sooner or later they've mixed, haven't they? And it probably turns out that there was quite a bit more. Now, how far down that rabbit hole goes is a matter of debate. And everyone's got their own different opinions on just how bad these vaccines are and why. And including almost, you know, almost zero bad. There are those in the conspiracy movement that go, oh, I think that vaccine is particularly good. And then there are those that don't want any of them. So the whole conspiracy anti-vaxxer thing, as Esther McVeigh is pointing out here, they are attributing one label to a very wide spectrum of thought processes and analyses. And when you lump them all together and divide them and take away their rights, some of them are going to meet up to see what they can do about it and they're going to exchange ideas. And some of the ones that weren't in the rabbit hole at all that just thought, I've taken every other vaccine but that was tried and tested over years. I think I'll give this one a miss. They have now met with the rabbit hole people and decided that perhaps there is a rabbit hole to look down. How far it goes and what they'll find down there is different for everyone. 
that the idea that there was a rabbit hole was only reinforced when they see exactly what's gone on and hear interviews like the previous doctor gave where the man in the street can go I'm not a doctor but I've just seen evidence from people who are better qualified than him saying that he's wrong and that my unqualified opinion is correct because I formed it as a result of a wider base of research and there's that coming idea that it's just you know it's not a lack of respect for doctors but it's almost like we're noticing that they possibly have a blind spot not question of intelligence but just some of them may have a blind spot for and we've saw that there where he says well, well it can stop transmission mate we've seen the evidence and we've heard the testimony the people that made it said they don't think it does the people that made it said they haven't got the data they just said they hoped that it did and so you then have the average man in the street having his opinions about his own intelligence and research reinforced when they see clips like that and have done their research those people are meeting with the all the way down the rabbit hole people and things are starting to happen have a listen of the way they were treated due to the COVID-19 vaccines. We've seen there has been a drop in the MMR vaccine. We've seen there has been a drop in the polio vaccine, which is wrong. People do need to take those vaccines. But all people in this house wanted to do was question this new vaccine, to have a debate on it, particularly when this house was wanting to mandate it on people and on care workers. So my point is this. If we allow language to be corrupted in this way and definitions of words to be bent out of shape... Don't forget the original definition of vaccine and the current definition of vaccine. Go and look at that up for yourselves as well. That could be a good example of what Esther's talking about here. Then we lack the tools for nuanced debate. And it is only by having a wide and open debate that we get to the central gravity of truth. I don't think we've had anything like a wide and open debate on the topic of the COVID-19 vaccines about their safety and their efficacy. Do you reckon? And I come back to the word safe, free from harm or risk of any kind, a word with an absolute definition not to be qualified or diminished. And yet we know that the COVID-19 vaccines, like all medical interventions, are not 100% free from risk or danger. And that's why the Blue Guide, a document published by the MR, MHRA, which gives detailed guidance on the legislation controlling how medicines are advertised in the UK, says this. Advertising which states or implies that a product is safe is unacceptable. All medicines have the potential for side effects and no medicine is completely risk-free as individual patients respond differently to treatment. This principle is also replicated within the UK pharmaceutical industry's own self-regulatory code of practice, which also states the word safe must not be used without qualification. On that basis, and worryingly, 
Both Pfizer and AstraZeneca are guilty by their own industry's self-regulatory code of breaking their own best practice. They were found to have misled the public, both by misrepresenting and overstating the efficacy of the COVID vaccines and erroneously describing them as safe in press releases and on social media without qualification. How many other organisations and individuals are also guilty of misleading the public in this way? We were told that AstraZeneca vaccines was perfectly safe, that word again, and there was no evidence of blood clots. But the advice was changed on the 7th of April 2021 so that those under the age of 30 years old should be offered an alternative brand due to the now proven link with blood clots. And then the advice changed again so that under 40s should be offered an alternative brand. A safety signal was picked up and acted upon, thank goodness. But in Denmark, the problem was picked up much sooner. They it was almost as if they had the results and some data to work with, <laughs> rather than just going, well, we think so, why don't you give it a go? Pause the use of AstraZeneca on the 11th of March 2021 after they had vaccinated 734,000 people. At the same time, 24 million people had been vaccinated in the UK without the MHRA detecting a signal of a problem. Why were we so far behind the curve? Was it because debate had been closed down? Was it because people were not allowed to even question what was going on? And what Cue the tech companies and social media companies. About mRNA vaccines. In Florida last year, the state surgeon general recommended against males aged between 18 and 39 from receiving mRNA COVID-19 vaccines of any brand. My question is what evidence was Florida reacting to? And is the MHRA urgently looking into whether we should be following suit here? In July 2020, the government published the first Do No Harm report. It highlighted significant problems and stated that the MHRA needs substantial revision, particularly in relation to adverse event reporting and medical device regulation. It needs to ensure that it engages more with patients and their outcomes. The spontaneous reporting platform for medicines and devices, the yellow card system, needs reform. The system is not good enough at spotting trends in practice and outcomes that give rise to safety concerns. What has been done since that report was published just over two years ago? Have these concerns been heard and acted upon? Dame June Rain, the head of the MHRA, recently said that the COVID pandemic has catalyzed the transformation of the regulator from watchdog to an enabler, which doesn't exactly sound like good news for anyone concerned about safety. Ultimately, it comes down to this. And again, that's where the man in the street comes in and goes, well, I'm not a medical doctorate, but if we see the same people who we think are lying seem to be profiting from that lie either immediately or a couple of years down the road with a revolving door, hmm, that stirs us. 
the government repeatedly told the public that COVID vaccines were safe. And for many, probably the vast majority, they were. But plenty of people have suffered as a result of their decision to follow the government advice and take this new medical intervention. Some have tragically lost their lives, and as was noted last month at the COVID inquiry by Anna Morris KC, victims and their families have been marginalised and face stigma and abuse for sharing their symptoms and have been branded anti-vax for sharing very real and medically proven vaccine injuries. This is really quite unacceptable. It is way past time that the government does the right thing. That's what happens when you have authority figures, be it government or social media, that promote censorship and name-calling over debate. When you promote tribalism over negotiations, um, that's what you get. It's like a cult-like behaviour. Recommendations of my honourable friend from Christchurch. It has been shocking to hear how slowly the vaccine damage payment scheme has been operating. Applicants have having to wait months. We heard too from the solicitor Peter Todd at a recent hearing of our APPG on pandemic response and recovery. He described how 139 applications have been waiting or applicants have been waiting for more than 18 months for a decision on their case. This is excessively long especially when people are injured and potentially unable to work. We were also told that 162 claims were found to have had disablement uh, caused by vaccine, but it was judged that they were just not disabled enough to merit a financial reward. And in many of those cases, the decision was reached without a doctor meeting or even speaking with the applicant to help with the assessment. So Dr. John Campbell shaking his head incessantly there. Just want to give a quick thought on what uh, Esther said earlier about safe and perfectly safe. So I think those two words, well, three, safe and perfectly safe are two different words for me. And I'll give you the example of it. I think perfectly safe means 100% and safe means around 95 plus and I think a good example of that could be for example a, a condom that's um, that's called safe sex isn't it but it's not 100% so that's my thought on that and the second thing you won't hear me do this very often but uh, just in slight defence of the pharmaceutical companies what I saw when they put out those vaccines earlier and what I read out on this show looked pretty honest to me they more or less said well we think it's okay on its own but we've got no idea how it interacts with other medications and no idea how it affects pregnancy or stability fertility Um, we're not liable for any damages you know knock yourself out if you want it that was more or less what I saw it definitely wasn't a glowing haha we've got a magical cure here at all it was that was why I was so surprised between the disconnect of and and that's why I saw such cult-like behavior because it just wasn't based in reality or truth if people were going well yep I'm not too sure what it does if I take this with my ibuprofen but you know what I'm scared enough to give it a go I could understand that 
but that wasn't what I heard it wasn't in touch with the reality of the press releases that I read out from at least from the Pfizer one that I saw and in the rare cases that there have been awarded money well that payment hasn't changed as my honourable friend for Christchurch said since 2007 so its value has been eroded by inflation and it simply just isn't good enough and so in conclusion I'll make a plea for transparency and integrity. It's time to be honest with the public about the safety of these vaccines, and we must start by giving them access to information and data without further delay. And we must also, as an urgent priority, look after those who have been damaged or those who have tragically lost loved ones. We may then begin to restore faith that has undoubtedly been lost in the authorities responsible for protecting and promoting public health. There are many unanswered questions and the repetition from ministers of those three words, safe and effective, for all the reasons I have just given, is simply not good enough an answer. And I'm delighted to be supporting my honourable friend uh, from Christchurch Bill today. Well, I just wanted to play that through because I know that uh, Esther McVeigh there really encapsulates a lot of the sentiments that we've been thinking about and um, really gives uh, words to our frustrations in, in that speech. Just before we finish today, I just want to read a, a short excerpt from the, um, this is from the appendix of a book called uh, 1984. It was expected that new speak would have finally superseded old speak or standard English as we should call it by about the year 2050. Now this is actually quite concerning. Um, this is the sort of time frame that is quite feasible for the way things are going foreseen by George Orwell in 1948 of course. Meanwhile it gained ground steadily. That's new speak gained ground steadily. All party members tending to use new speak words and grammatical constructions more and more in their everyday speech. Really is quite uncanny when you read some of these, uh, well, predictions uh, from uh, the late great George Orwell. So to George Orwell uh, and uh, Esther McVeigh, thank you very much and thank you for watching. So that was an interesting one, I thought. And Esther McVeigh was talking about what the British government would need to do to try and restore faith in the medical establishment. Turn that on its head and what happens if they not only do not do that, but double down and just continue like the, the doctor from the previous clip. It's great. It's wonderful. Have some more. What would happen if they continued to go oh there are all this data coming out you see Esther said we need to give the public the data what happens if they not only not give out the data that you want but if someone was to present data like that go oh well it seems like it's scientifically valid however have it banned on social media because that's just the way it is because we say they're an anti-vaxxer and we have created the new words and we are you know, you will do as we say. That's part of the new words. 
So all things worth bearing in mind. We will now go, of course, when you're trying to shove crap down someone's throat, it really does help if they swallow it and you force feed it down them and tie them to the chair when you do it so they don't have any choice. So, and massively cut off anyone's help for a rescue or alternative ideas. So, with that in mind, we all know what Trudeau and Canada has been like over the last few years. Let's have a listen to uh, Joe Rogan. This was from three weeks ago. Canada's new regulations for podcasts. They're regulating podcasts in Canada. Oh yeah, yeah. and I was re- yeah. yeah, I was reading about this about this bill. This because I, I, I woke up and I, you know we're jet lagged, so I woke up at a ridiculous time. I went on the phone, which you should never do. Let's be honest, that is a bad way to start the day. It's not good. No, <laughs> and then I was reading about what they're doing. It's terrifying. So they want to bring in this bill whereby. They regulate podcasts. So what they want to do is every every uh, podcast uh, streamer or whatever it is platform that makes more than $10 million revenue, not profit, revenue, has to register with the Canadian government. They then want them to hand over information. About- so that's good news for me. My grand total is zero. Whether that's be uh, Canadian or US dollars or English pounds, the value is the same. Absolute zero their content and the people listening <laughs> to their to, right to their oh to the to the government imagine Trudeau. getting a hold of alex jones's email list <laughs> <laughs> probably a bunch of senators on yeah. there yeah. yeah oh yeah for sure i mean imagine yeah and then the government can get that they're talking right now about and maybe we're going to need to fact check this again because i met, i was reading it this morning but basically they want it to promote canadian uh, something to do with like basically what c- Canadian greatness, whatever it is, they, they mm. talk about it and indigenous affairs. And you're like, oh, so they're going to say a number of things are un-Canadian and then you can just silence them. Look what Trudeau, Trudeau, Trudeau did with the truckers. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. We just well, had one of their guys on to talk about it. Not- that I said at the time that will forever be remembered as just total dark period in Canada's history and they're still going around like yeah we're proud we did it but the just the extent of how far they went with that will be a dark stain not easily forgotten nor should it be just the truckers but people who donated to the truckers got their bank accounts closed yeah yeah well that is wild yeah you got locked out of all of your money because you donated to a cause where you didn't think that people should have to take an experimental vaccine in order to be able to work to drive a truck but really no. <laughs> really you get it you think that's okay like that's so not okay the fact that those people aren't up in arms the whole country didn't freak out and demand often change like you can't have that's dictatorship stuff that's right. what that is it's banana republic stuff we do these calls with our top supporters and we have some in canada we have this lady who's been supporting us for years and she, you know she's always fine and in the middle of this thing she was like i'm terrified I c- I'm not going to be able to eat because they, they're going to shut down my bank account. God. Right? In Canada. It's so crazy that they think they could do that if people disagree with them. Because that's all they're doing. They're just disagreeing. And they're supporting a protest. It should be... And it was a peaceful protest. Those people did it the right way. They just parked their trucks and 
They didn't block roads off. They didn't do anything. But if you frame it that these people, which is how they were being framed as racist far right. Well, look, yeah. the, you're giving money to a far right racist organization. You're encouraging hate. Well, well, the government has to step in. We have to step in and we need to freeze everything because we need to make everything safe. What would... And again, it comes back to those those words losing their meaning. They're right wing Nazis. Hold on a second. You're breaching the Nuremberg Code, which was done against the Nazis. You're the one that's breaching the... The lawyers are saying are potentially breaching it by breaching the Nuremberg Code. That's what the Nazis did. That really is doublespeak. And yet here we are. This most recent apology because they accidentally <laughs> awarded a Nazi... Yeah. Like, what, what happened? I think... So, I think Zelensky was visiting the Canadian Parliament... And they got some guy who was a Ukrainian, inverted commas, war veteran. Turned out he fought for the for the bad guys, in that one. Oh my God! Yeah, uh, I don't think they. I don't think like Zelensky or I, I don't they know. He didn't know. Yeah, you know, he didn't know. But so so imagine you're sitting in Parliament and everyone's like, "Hey, let's uh, do a st you know stand up and <laughs> and give a round of applause for this war veteran." You're like, ah, and then it turns out you're applauding a Nazi. How old is this dude? Old. Like, yeah, he probably doesn't even know. <laughs> I'm not a good guy. I'm not a fucking good guy. No, maybe he's like tricked himself. Yeah. 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 Imagine. So, dark times ahead for Canada if the Canadians don't stand up for themselves a little bit more. I was also thinking the other day about how AI is going to massively affect some of our lives. And I think it will uh, affect the dating scene because a lot of people are going to put that into algorithms to get the most romantic answers because most dating's done online now. So people are going to turn up expecting this wonderful romantic person on the other end of the phone and suddenly now they don't have access to that AI app. They're not going to be quite as uh, creative with their vocabulary. I think that's going to change that. I think mainly it's going to change work. So what are the sort of jobs that it's going to take? I would say would be more likely to be service sector. So logistics, analysis, um, call centers. That would be how I think it would start. And I think a lot of those jobs would be women. I don't think AI is going to be taking the place of sewer cleaners fishermen, construction workers. I mean, it's all possible in years to come with robots, but just pure AI, that it's limited with its physicalities at the moment. So it needs to be stationary and dry. And I think a lot of the jobs that it would encroach upon would be a traditionally female territory. So I think that there could be a great deal of political gain for any party that would offset that. So, I think there are two main ways you could offset that. One, be against AI to keep the jobs. Or two, replace the money that they've lost. So, you would have to do a universal credit system. Or, you would have to find jobs that traditionally women would be the ones that would be doing and that AI wouldn't do. 
Now, with that in mind, and th this is not me suggesting this is a good idea in any way, I'm just wondering if the world would consider going down this route. Um, and I don't want to offend anyone or any... I, that's really not my intention. I'm just thinking out aloud with the, this part of the podcast about how I can see the future going and see if I can already see some of that potentially being implemented. So there is a job that traditionally uh, has an, what, a 99% female employment rate. And if you were to legalise it, would it be a vote winner or a vote loser? If you had two party candidates that were in favour of legalising prostitution and the other one was universal basic income, I think the universal basic income wins. Having said that, this is an interesting article. And uh, I'll just read it out now. New York Post, and it is published on October the 23rd of this year by Marjorie Hernandez. Inside LA's brazen sex market where women sell themselves in broad daylight emboldened by California's new laws. I had no idea this law had been passed until this article came into my sphere of news recognition. Emboldened by new California laws that make it nearly impossible for cops to bust prostitutes, sex workers in Los Angeles' red light district stalk for business wearing no more than thongs, g-strings and high heels in broad daylight. A 40 block area how big is a block? How big is a block? I suppose it's... Is it a standardised measurement? Or... 40 block, I can't think that that's small. 40 block area of Figueroa Boulevard in South LA sees hundreds of prostitutes, some barely out of their teens, plying their trade since Governor Gavin Newsom passed the controversial Safer Streets for All Act, which decriminalised loitering with the intent to work as a prostitute in January. Before, this type of activity only happened at night, where most citizens wouldn't see it, but now it's 24-7, one source told the Post. You can drive by at 2pm and see it. Families drive by and see 10 girls on the corner, condoms on the ground. So, as a libertarian, my view is uh, people can do what they want, you know, consenting in adults and stuff like that. But I think it probably would be a good idea to keep it out of the eyes of general public, and especially children. Now... I'm never one to argue for more taxation from government, but if this was licensed, which could be a form of taxation because you'd have to pay for the license, then you could be able to keep it safer, cleaner and more discreet for everyone, could you not? So this sounds like a libertarian law from someone who perhaps could have gone to Nevada or Amsterdam to see how they've legalised it and kept it from families and children seeing it 24-7. So it continues, you go by the alleys and you see a guy, oh, I'll just leave that there. <coughs> what you see, I shall leave that there. You can read all the articles for yourself. Now, another article here. This is from Hampshire Live. Policeman moves to Australia to do same job with fewer hours for £400 more a month. So there you go, if you've got any...
policeman listening to this podcast. Mind you, it depends what part of Australia, wouldn't it? Because who was the uh, really pro-lockdown guy? Was it Dan Andrews? I don't want to go where he goes. But I imagine some of the other parts of Australia wouldn't be quite as harsh with their lockdowns. But um, in the UK, John once had to do a 19 and a half hour shift. He now earns 60k a year, that's English pounds, in a force with twice as many staff. I suppose you need twice as many staff to impose such harsh lockdowns. A policeman has moved his entire family to Australia for work and love it so much they don't even plan to return to the UK for a holiday. John McDonald, 35, worked for Staffordshire Police for nine years before taking a leap and moving to Australia. The dad of three relocated his entire family to Redcliffe near Perth, Western Australia in August. He was fed up of staff shortages in the UK which meant he was always working alone and demands for overtime work saw him work shifts up to 19 hours. Along with the perks of the sun and sea down under and of course all those creepy callers he earns 400 pound a month more each month than he did in the uk despite working less hours his family have fallen in love with their new lifestyle in the six weeks since they moved and have no plans to return to the uk not even for a holiday john from teen staff said i absolutely love my job in the uk and never wanted to do anything else from the age of 16 but uk policing has been gradually hit by cuts over the years less staff meant i was working alone and did lots of overtime so yeah an interesting and it, we're seeing a lot, a lot of people want to come into the uk but we're also seeing more and more people wanting to leave it for a variety of reasons as well now here's another article that I thought was really quite interesting. This one is from Fortune, but I think a number of people uh, covered this. Actually, it won't be from Fortune, actually, because it's behind a paywall. We're going to do it from Bloomberg instead. So I'll read out uh, lots of things to click to get you to go away. Oh, bear with me. Right, here we are, Bloomberg. Tinder offers $500 a month subscription to its most active users. $6,000 per year plan is invite only and includes VIP search. Tinder parent match group has been has seen declining subscribers. So Tinder has rolled out an ultra premium subscription tier to its data app service charging $499 per month to access features like exclusive search and matching. So I first heard about this on from a mainstream media clip I saw on the internet and it was very interesting their take on it because what they were saying and I'm para this is my interpretation of their opinions by the way but what they were saying was what sort of guy would just throw away $500 a month and then what sort of woman would be attracted to men that throw away $500 a month? And if it's their most active users, then what is it that they're actively looking for? Because if they're looking to meet a romantic partner, you probably wouldn't target that person because once they found their romantic partner, they're going to come off that app. So who would have a lot of money to spend on meeting people? I'm going to say I'm going to assume men. I don't think women are going to pay five hundred dollars a month to meet men. 
I think men would pay $500 a month to meet women. So what sort of men would be highly active, i.e. not looking to settle down and spend lots of money meeting women and be very active to imply if they're very active it would probably imply that they're active with lots of women so what kind of guy would they be going for now there's no way you could get them for that if you if your mind is going that way but it could be a little stroke of genius on the way down because their whole business model of I think people are now understanding online dating isn't quite what it's cracked up to be and a lot of people well I think there are a number of um, number of surveys that suggest the dissatisfaction rate with it is extremely high so if you've got a product where your dissatisfaction rate is high and people are already leaving it you would need to go to a different business model so that was what that mainstream media people were implying and I hope that I've managed to cover it and similar to the whole California article so food for thought there I hope I haven't upset uh, anyone with that I certainly am never suggesting that anyone has a certain role or things but everyone should have the right to lead the life that they want to lead as long as they're not bothering anybody sometimes I look into a crystal ball sometimes I can see things coming clearer as years go. Sometimes I look at it and I think, man, <laughs> I was way off. Time will tell. But either way, thanks for listening.